Welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show, an interview podcast promoting learning through conversation. Our goal is to find and meet people leading interesting lives and go a little bit deeper on their backstories, passions, and ideas. Lewis, who are we interviewing today? Today, Kyle, we are joined by my friend Angelo Robletto. Angelo is truly a jack of all trades, and he's got more to say about that expression here in a minute. Angelo's passions include rock climbing, archaeology, public speaking, politics, lockpicking, atlatl, music sampling, which he actually has a fantastic podcast about, which I recommend checking out, and we can get more into that in that section of the show. But that's Angelo, and uh, thanks for joining us, buddy. Uh, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited. Cool, us too. So the first question, like I just said, is could you tell us a little more about the jack-of-all-trades expression and how you relate to it and your thoughts on it? Yeah, so the a lot of people know that expression, jack-of-all-trades, and they generally take it to have a negative connotation. Uh, in fact, in the song... Um, that there's a song by the Temptations that basically talks about uh, uh, Papa Rolls of Rolling Stone is the name of the song, uh, and it says, uh, you know, Papa was a jack of all trades. Tell me, Mama, is that why? Is that what sent Papa to an early grave? So there's this negative connotation that society has with somebody who is a jack of all trades. Uh, but what's interesting is that the original connotation, like the original expression, actually is a lot longer. The ex- original expression is jack of all trades, but master of none. Uh, better than a master of just one. So the point of that saying is basically, you know, somebody who has a lot adequate or proficient skill in a lot of different things is better than somebody who is a master at just one thing. Uh, so it's interesting how the original expression had a positive connotation about somebody who is a master uh, or a jack of all trades. But the modern rendition uh, of the expression, which is a truncated rendition of the expression, actually is a negative connotation. Um, but I definitely take that to heart. I try to explore as many different fields and topics as possible uh, and just get a little bit good at everything, uh, or as much as I can at least. Sure. So from what we've talked about before the interview, seems like you've kind of developed a lot of those interests early on. This isn't just some project you know you came up with in college that you want to be good at a lot of things. How did you get started along this path of being at a lot of things and teaching a lot of them to yourself where you have any yeah i or inspirations it, for that? it definitely um my great grandfather uh actually is the starter of this kind of project for me uh he passed away about a month before i was born but he worked as a locksmith as an entrepreneur as an inventor he owned his own bar. Uh, he had a bunch of different business ventures. He was even a trapeze rope repairman for a while. Um, just really weird niche things where he would learn how to do this really weird skill uh, and then turn it into a business of some kind and always exploring different topics, different skills. The, diff- the major difference between him and I is that he was much more reserved, uh, at, you know, so I've been told by my family, a lot quieter, more introverted, whereas I'm a little bit more extroverted. Uh, but... He definitely is kind of the archetype of that jack-of-all-trades. Uh, and the joke in my family is that I'm basically just like that. So he, you know, definitely was a huge uh, inspiration hearing stories about these crazy, like, hijinks he got into, uh, especially during his days as a locksmith, um, which is really interesting. I definitely got started on this pretty young, uh, you know, in elementary schools when I got into archaeology, but that, you know, transferred into interest in geology and paleontology and you know different different fields physics and engineering but i definitely took things to a different level than most of my peers um you know a lot of kids grow up having a rock collection for example it's a pretty normal thing my rock collection was like 
museum cataloged. I wrote my own catalog cards and had my own uh, Moe's Hardness pick set. I don't know if you've ever seen those, um, but I basically wanted that for Christmas one year when I was in, I think, first or second grade, and my parents got it for me. So I would do scratch tests and streak plates and um, developed like mu- little museum exhibits with catalogs for my rock collection. And that's just like one example of me taking a weird hobby super deeply for two years and then putting it down and picking something else up. But what's interesting is that throughout my entire you know, K through 12 life, my academic interests always circled back to archaeology. Uh, at my graduation party in high school, my mom made a timeline of photographs of me throughout my childhood. And there were always me doing different hobbies. And every three or four pictures, archaeology would pop up. And then it'd be geology for a few pictures, and then archaeology would come back. And then it'd be engineering for a few pictures, and then geology would come back. Or, I mean, archaeology would come back. Um, so it kind of just always cycled through archaeology. And it was pretty interesting that uh, even though I explored a lot of different things, I always kind of came back to, to the one hobby and the one passion, and that's what I'm doing now. Um, but yeah, I definitely just developed that from a young age and wanted to just be interested. Maybe it's because I have a short attention span. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people claim that about me, that I have a short attention span. But I think it's because I get so deep into something so quickly, I not get bored of it, but I definitely like burn out of it a little bit faster than the average person. Um, Cause I dive, I go zero to a hundred when I get a new hobby instead of like slowly incrementally building it up. Sure. Uh, so what exactly when you learn archeology, span like in college, what exactly do they cover? Just a bunch of specific histories or the met the techniques. Yeah. So it's definitely, it's a little bit of both for sure. Uh, so archeology span is a subfield of anthropology uh, and there's four subfields, major subfields within anthropology. So archaeology is one of them. Then cultural anthropology, linguistic anthropology, and biological anthropology are the other three. So as an undergraduate in anthropology, I have to take coursework in all four. But then in my the last two years, I've been able to kind of specialize and pick that subfield. And then within each of those subfields, there's you know hundreds of, of microfields. Um, so within archaeology... You, generally, people develop a geographic specialty and a uh, material specialty. So somebody will be a ceramics expert in Guatemala or a stone tool expert in uh, Eastern Woodlands, United States, or an architectural expert in Southwest United States. So you generally pick those two things. I'm still narrowing down my geographic specialty that I want to pursue in grad school, but I've definitely... Since, uh, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating, probably since kindergarten or first grade, I've been dead set on experimental archaeology being my material specialty. So experimental archaeology is tool and weapon recreation. So it's basically uh, taking, and that's kind of a very you know watered down version of what it is. But basically, if you have some sort of artifact that a field archaeologist has discovered and doesn't really know how it works... An experimental archaeologist will try to replicate it out of the same materials that it was made out of and then use it for a variety of tasks to figure out what it might be used best for. So here's this object. I'm going to recreate it. Well, is it a digging tool? I don't know. Let's try to dig with it, see if it works. Is it a hunting tool? Let's try to hunt with it, see if it works. Um, The other side of of experimental archaeology would be uh, like kind of like use for analysis. So if I can recreate a stone knife and then cut, you know, uh, an animal hide with that stone knife and then under a microscope look at what cutting animal hide does to the edge of a stone knife 
I can compare those findings with actual archaeologically found materials to determine potentially what those stone knives are being used for if it matches what's on the microscope, right? So they've actually found through experimentation that stone knives used to cut grass as if you were cutting wheat, right, for agriculture leaves a very specific microscopic uh, traces on the stone edge because it actually buffs the edge. And we, we call it gloss or sheen, uh, sickle sheen or sickle gloss. So that was discovered through experimental archaeology. Somebody recreated an ancient stone sickle, sickle, started cutting a bunch of grass with it, and looked at what that does to the archaeological remains. Because archaeology is attempting to recreate or understand a past life or culture only through the remains that they've left behind. There's no people we can ask, how did you do this? There's no, uh, a lot of times there aren't record, written records in some parts of the world. Um, so we only can go off of literally the trash that was left behind, uh, which is really, really interesting. Uh, so there's even some modern archaeologists or anthropologists called garbologists. Uh, William Rathje is one of them you can look up. Uh, what he did was dig up modern human American trash pits. So he went to landfills and he conducted archaeological excavations in modern landfills. Like on, on people that are still alive, theoretically. Theoretically, yes. Um, because we know what life was like in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. He did this in the 1980s and 90s. We know what life was like in that time period, in the mid-20th century. So we can match the patterns that we're finding in garbage disposal of modern humans to perhaps make uh, claims or make theories about what patterns of garbage disposal humans have as a species in general and apply that to past to past lives. So he would literally take almost like an ice core machine and take a core out of a landfill and the layers would show different, you know, trash throughout the decades. Um, and that revealed patterns of human waste disposal. Um, and the hope would be that if you do garbology in a number of human societies, you could hopefully find a universal pattern for the human species about waste disposal and then apply that to different parts of the world. Wow. Well, I think that was oh, a... Oh, go ahead, Kyle. Yeah, like all of that is, is very interesting. And I think that, uh, you, you know, your passion shows through you talking. And it's especially a good field for you because all of these little things, you could go a mile deep with, with every single one mm-hmm. of them. Um, one thing you mentioned briefly was how, um, you know, since you were very young, you wanted to be in the, in the weapons and um, weapons and, and uh, what was the other word for tool, it? Tool, tool and yeah, weapon we, recreation, we, yeah. Tool and weapon, weapon recreation. And I think that's interesting with one of your other um, hobbies or passions, the atlatl. Uh, yeah. Could you could you give us a little uh, background and information about what an atlatl is and how you got into that? Yeah, for sure. So the atlatl is definitely within experimental archaeology. What my number one focus has been for the past eleven years, I believe, maybe a little bit longer. Um, and so the atlatl is a. 40,000-year-old, roughly, spear-throwing... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a 40,000-year-old spear-throwing weapon that predates the bow and arrow by about 15,000 years, uh, if not a little bit more, in in Eurasia. So it definitely spread with human migration. So it it was... The oldest records we have of atlatls are in uh, Paleolithic France that date to about 35,000 BCE, roughly. Um, The problem is they're made out of, of wood, so it wood or antler, so they don't really preserve that well. So they could be much older, we're just not sure. Uh, And then we know that in Eurasia, they go out of style, quote-unquote, around 15,000 BCE when the bow and arrow uh, starts popping up. The atlatl spread 
with human migration over the, the Bering Strait into North and South America, where it was used all the way up until European contact in uh, 1521, actually, roughly, um, because 1521 is when the uh, conquest of Tenochtitlan happened uh, in the Aztec Empire uh, and the Spaniards, the Spaniard conquistadors, Hernan Cortez. Uh, and basically, they killed the last Atlatl users, major Atlatl users. Atlatl is actually an Aztec word. The Aztec language is called Nahuatl. Uh, and I don't know how well that uh, that sound is going to come up on the microphone, but um, it's a hallmark of the, the Aztec language. And uh, the atlatl in that traditional pronunciation would be more of like an atl-atl, but for modern kind of sake, we call it an atlatl. Uh, the atlatl was used in conjunction with the bow and arrow in the North and South America, which is unique because the rest of the world transitioned away from the atlatl once the bow and arrow was, was invented. Um, but what's interesting about the atlatl is that some have theorized it to be the first two-part weapon or tool system ever invented by humans. Uh, because what it is, it's a short stick that's about two feet long with a hook in the end that hooks into a giant six-foot dart or spear, and that it then propels that spear forward with greater velocity than you could throw by hand. And that concept of propelling a projectile from behind the center of gravity or at the end is the same concept that we have with modern projectile weapons. So if you think about a bow and arrow, the arrow knocks into the string at the back. It's almost directly derivative from the atlatl. It has that same concept. Atlatl darts also flex while they fly in order to have a conservation of energy. And arrows under high speed will flex in the same way. It's called the archer's paradox. Uh, in atlatls, because they're so much longer, you can see the flex with the naked eye. But with arrows, you can't see the flex unless you have a high speed camera. And modern rockets and you know ammunition also are propelled from behind the center of gravity. It's a very efficient way of propelling things. Um, there's, you know, the idea of a hand-thrown spear, particularly one used to throw at distance to hunt something, is mostly Hollywood legend and myth. There are some cultures who use such a weapon, but it's not as widespread. Uh, the actual body mechanics of throwing a spear just doesn't really work uh, when you hold it from the midpoint like that. Olympic javelins are very front-heavy, and they're also thrown at an extreme arc. They're not meant for accuracy. Uh, there have been studies that had Olympic uh, or collegiate javelin throwers attempt to throw archaeologically accurate th throwing spears, not using that ladle, just actually throwing it like a javelin at a flat target, 2D target. Um, and ED, you know these are top athletes made to throw spears, and they still weren't able to hit it with much reliability because it's just not really accurate. Um, so my kind of little saying is spears are for thrusting, at ladles are for throwing, uh, and and. and yeah, it's it's interesting. I do a lot of atlatl outreach and educational yeah, I was workshops. Ask about that. Yeah, so um, I've been studying. I first read about atlatls probably first or second grade, and then I started making my own shortly thereafter. So I've been making and throwing atlatls uh, for about ten or eleven years, and then I started competing with the World Atlatl Association uh, about six years ago, I believe, five years ago maybe, uh, and then got into contact with other archaeologists who specialize in the atlatl who make up this atlatl association along with hobbyists and there's a big tournament that happens here in nevada every year uh, that's been going on for about 30 years now at valley of fire nevada so i started going to that tournament and uh, eventually became the youngest elected board member for the board of directors for the world atlatl association i represent their west coast uh interests basically mm -hmm. we, we kind of do it geographically there's a board of directors and then there's a uh, an actual executive officer board with like a president and vice president and secretary. So 
we have members all over the world and we try to host events and tournaments and sanction events. We also have a publication called the Atlatl. It's a quarterly uh, web magazine that publishes academic inf- academic articles and research papers about the Atlatl. So I've published stuff in there as well. That's awesome. And yeah, it's really, really fun. We do a lot of events and I've focused as my tenure at the, as the board of directors is really focusing on public outreach. So I developed You go into schools, right? Yeah, yeah. So I developed a workshop package basically. Uh, it all fits in my car. It's a collapsible target that I bring to schools and I have like a lecture that I go with it uh, that goes with it that explains what archaeology is, what experimental archaeology is, what the atlatl is, and then I let students try to throw an atlatl. Um I hand make all my atlatls and have a bunch extra, so I bring those to schools. And it's been really successful. I've done it at uh, maybe four or five different school groups, uh, middle high school and elementary school level, mostly elementary school. I've also done it for uh, museums and uh, at UNLV a lot. I, I'll do host atlatl events in the department, in the department of anthropology. And then I've worked with the Bureau, the Bureau of Land Management and the State His- Historic Preservation Office to do atlatl workshops in Central Nevada for community outreach programs. Um, awesome. And that's all fantastic. that's on top of yeah, on top of the normal tournament stuff that I do hosting with the World Atlatl Association. I just have a good time kind of showing how smart our human ancestors were uh, and resourceful. Uh, t- and resourceful, yeah. We we definitely take for granted. Uh, the ingenuity that they had. We have this, you know, caveman stereotype of, of these dumb grunting cavemen mm-hmm. um, throughout history. But that's just so far from the truth when you think about what they actually had to do to discover what they had to discover. Um, I mean, come on, how did things... Here are, like, the things that keep me up at night when it comes to archaeology, right? Sure, so, okay, so you can, like, accidentally... <laughs> yeah, you can accidentally domesticate wheat, right? Like, okay, so you, you have these edible wheat seeds. You want to uh, come up with an easier way to harvest them. So one of the things that, that uh, uh, you know, archaeologists look at are the rachis of the seed, which is basically the part that connects the seed to the stem for, like, wheat, basically. Um, the stronger that is, like, so a, a plant wants its own rachis to be weak so that the wind will scatter the seeds and, and, pot, and uh, you know, pollinate and things like that, right? But... If you want to harvest that, you want to be able to collect the seeds yourself. So you don't want it breaking off before you harvest. So you selectively breed uh, plants that have stronger rake, you know, rake, sure. reiki. I'm not sure what the plural of that is. I think it's reiki. Um, so archaeologists can sometimes look at uh, plants, and depending on the strength of the rachis, they can tell at what stage of de- domestication that that plant was so i work in a paleo ethnobotany lab which is another material specialty so you know paleo old ethno cultural botany plants so old cultural plants any sort of plant remains that were involved with with a human development or human use so they they can look at my the professor i work with dr alan farahani he's incredible he can look at a seed and be or you know look at a rachis and be like oh okay so this must be this time period at this area of the world because uh this is like 40 percent strength of what a modern wheat would look like so we know that it's in that stage of development or domestication i can understand selectively breeding for those type of traits say we do the same thing with animals dogs think about all the breeds of dogs cats etc here's here's where it gets crazy how do you know to grind up the seeds mix it with water and fire it to make bread and then how do you know that like when you accidentally introduce yeast to that bread and it puffs up that that's actually good and it's not going to kill you uh here's another interesting thing in the same grain uh no pun intended yeah yeah i i I, I promise i didn't mean that at all um i believe so 
a lot of times archaeologists have assumed that alcohol happened after the domestication of bread wheat. So we domesticated wheat, created unleavened bread, and then leavened bread, uh, and then it's somebody the time accent- of year actually for the Jews. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, we figured out how to you know yeast it, but then somebody accidentally left water and and wheat uh, in a jar. And it fermented and it became beer, right? Uh, and it's been long known that that ancient Egyptians actually all drank beer, a very low alcoholic beer, instead of pure water because the water in the Nile was too dirty to drink. So everybody, even children, drank low alcoholic beer. That was the standard uh, drink um, because they didn't have anything else that was that was sterile. So in modern, in the last maybe ten years, there's actually been a counter theory that actually says that it's the other way around. Humans accidentally discovered alcohol, and then because they're like, wait, we want to be able to produce this alcohol thing more reliably, let's learn how to domesticate wheat. And that's like kind of crazy. How could, wait, how could that have happened? How could they discover alcohol first? Or just alcohol and other? Can you kind of... Well, yeah, so mead is the first alcohol that was discovered. Uh, mm-hmm. Most people, you know, according to most academics, so mead is, is honey also called honey wine, but it's just honey and water mixed together that's left to ferment. Uh, so honey is something you don't have to domesticate. You can collect it naturally. It makes sense. You leave it in a jar in a cool place. It is going to ferment, turn into uh, alcohol. Uh, we do know that hunter-gatherer groups were collecting wheat and making you know wheated products before they had settled and made like domesticated agricultural wheat that could grow in the same place. Um, so in that sense, they were able to potentially, you know, create that uh, alcoholic beverage first, as and then in a desire to standardize and basically mass produce that alcohol, decided to settle and domesticate wheat to stay in one place and, and develop that way. Um, it's it's a theory that's like up and coming. It's not anything that's like super concrete, but it's just an interesting yeah, counterpoint really interesting. to the original like hypothesis um, of, of how that all happened. But it's kind of interesting how like you know, such a human vice like alcohol, which is, you know, such a thing that's shared by all cultures. All Everyone in the world developed a love of alcohol. So something about that was alluring to humans and potentially without our, assuming this theory is true, mm-hmm. if we didn't have our affinity for alcohol, we potentially would have never domestic, you know, uh, not yeah. never, but we would have delayed our domestication. It would have changed the course of human development substantially. For sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Thank your nearest alcoholic. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> no, it, it is really interesting that kind of stuff, um, yeah. and that's why I'm drawn to that experimental archaeology recreating. Like, okay, well, what would they have been working with to develop an early beer or an sure. early, early mead? That leads to um, a lot yeah. of potential. There's a lot of room for being creative and inventive in yourself because you kind of have to reinvent the processes as if you were. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I think uh, it kind of worked. I was interested, like I mentioned, in engineering for a while. So experimental archaeology is this this mixture of archaeology, history, and engineering. Um, And then with the atlatls, there's another aspect to the atlatls that I didn't mention. It's the the actual tip itself, the spear point. Um, How do they make, you know, how do you learn how to chip flint or obsidian into a spear point? Uh, So that's called flint napping. Napping spelled K-N-A-P-P-I-N-G. And that's a whole other field of study uh in and of itself it's called lithic analysis or lithics so that's definitely my broad so within experimental archaeology i'm definitely exploring lithics as my okay. secondary and then within lithics at lateral specifically um or that like complex compound weapon um but so i'm in a flint mapping class right now kind of uh 
TAing unofficially a little mm-hmm. bit because I came into the class with a lot of foot mapping experience already. It's something I've been doing for a long time, but I'm learning the. Um, so the first half of the semester, back when gonna, we actually yeah. were in school before coronavirus, uh, was actually learning how to flint nap. And then the second half of the semester is actual lithic analysis of the material that we flint napped. Yeah, so I was going to ask uh, along that train of thought, you're very knowledgeable about the atlatl. That's a very obvious statement. So what is it that is still left for you to learn about it that interests you? And like, what are some questions left unanswered about the atlatl that you're working towards or just aspire, uh, aspire to? Whatever. Yeah, so I have... Personally, I want to figure out the transition of how like atlatls were used in conjunction with bows and arrows, especially North and South America. So, you know, where the the atlatl came. That transitional period is definitely interesting to me. Um, There's also so the atlatl was considered uh, was almost like deified as a weapon by Mesoamerican cultures. and you know, I, that that's it's hard to exactly say, but they definitely held it in a level of reverence, uh, the atlatl, and a lot of iconography and epigraphy. So epigraphy is like uh, like hieroglyphs would be a type of epigraphy, um, and then icon. Uh, so uh, basically, a lot of like artwork and writing in Mayan and Aztec cultures uh, or Maya and Aztec cultures utilize atlatl symbols, atlatl artwork. Um, There's like an atlatl god, for example. So understanding that is pretty interesting for me, especially because the atlatls depicted in the artwork is different than the atlatls that a lot of times are thought of uh, or that are used today. So there's different styles that happened in that time period, in that area of the world that I'm curious about as well. Particularly, there's a style called a, a two-finger or a split-finger atlatl or a two-finger atlatl, also called a basket-maker-style atlatl. And it's called basket-maker-style because it was originally thought to only happen in basket-maker culture of southern Nevada and northern Arizona. But there are stone carvings of basket-maker atlatls in uh, Chichen Itza, uh, Mexico, and other parts of classic Maya um, area uh in Belize and Guatemala. Yes. And the current theory is that atlatls spread from Teotihuacan, which is uh, in central Mexico, a separate culture, separate quote-unquote civilization, quote-unquote empire. And then transition down, uh, there's a theory that Teotihuacan conquered uh, Tikal in Guatemala and then spread its culture, which included the atlatl throughout uh, that area. There's actually a king called Atlatl Frog. Um, and... There, no, I'm sorry, not Atlatl Frog. I totally lied about that. Atlatl Owl. Atlatl okay. Owl. Mm. That's the name of the king Important that they. Distinction. Yeah, they, they theorize that that was the king that spread um, that Teotihuacan culture and conquered in that area. It's not exactly proven, but his name glyph, his uh, epigraphy glyph, basically shows up at the same time period all around this area. And they kind of indicate that they're from a different area uh, of the world at that time. So, so Mayan. Uh, glyphs in Belize say, okay, well, there's this person that came from the north named Atlatl Owl, and he had this, a lot of this influence. Um, so understanding that spread is definitely interesting for me, how that basket maker style, you know, either went from south to north or north to south, because it mm. is only found, there's no other place in the world that has split finger Atlatl like that. Even though Atlatls are found in Europe, in Asia, in Australia, um, even the, that style of basket maker Atlatl isn't even found in other parts of the United States or North America. 
Uh, it's only in this stretch from southern Nevada, northern Arizona to uh, you know northern Belize, southern Mexico. Area. And you've been there. Uh, and understanding that is very interesting for me. Yeah. So yeah, great, great transition. I think this there. will probably I, be the, the last yeah. point on the archaeology side of things. And we'll for sure, things. for sure. But I did want to get to the fact that you've actually been to some of the spots you're talking about, right? Yeah. So I've actually original exploration. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I've done a few archaeological excavations in that area I was just talking about. Uh, I did one in northern Arizona. Uh, in my in high school, I went with a professor, an experimental archaeology professor at UNLV, Dr. Karen Hari, and we went to Shivitz Plateau in northern Arizona. That was like my first kind of uh, archaeological excavation. Really, really great time. And then this past, so a year ago, this last month, basically, uh, so spring of 2019, I went to Catacol, Belize, which is the largest Mayan site in Belize, the country of Belize. Um, it is argued as the largest Maya site in history. Um, it is massive. It, it is mm-hmm. incomprehensible. Uh, and it's hard for me to explain, like, especially over audio, people who can't see like my many maps and graphs that I have in my head. But we're talking hundreds of thousands of people um, living in this city and it was a low-density city that had a very interesting infrastructure network. There was a central capital that we called the, the quote-unquote downtown area, basically. And then there were causeways that were like highways or you know walking roads that spread out in a dendric fashion. Um, so kind of like uh, your neurons. So there was like a node, and then it, there would be connections. It would go to other nodes, and those would spread out. Uh, like and then hub and, each... hub and spoke, kind of? Or... Uh, similar. Well, not hub and... Yeah, I guess I well, hub and spoke implies like everything is coming out from the middle, right? Or it's um, like multiple of those kind of interconnected, or correct? I guess that's more exactly, exactly. Wise, yeah, yeah. So that's what I mean. It's like a dendric network kind of thing, okay. um, where like a neural network almost. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is this one main area, but it branches off, and then each of those branches branches off okay. uh, in different ways, um, and each node was controlled by with almost like a mayor of that township or that district uh or like a governor and then they all kind of funneled back into the okay. king um so what are some things and, you learned from your time there like in yeah so i lived in a stick hut in the jungle for two months with no running water or electricity <laughs> wow. uh, every that? day yeah every day for 60 days we would uh hike slash bushwhack through the jungle and excavate uh, different sites so we excavated one of those like mayor kind of areas governor mansions uh i would like to call them and then we also excavated some you know quote-unquote middle-class households throughout the the season as well we found um burials and you know i think seventeen thousand pottery sherds um and then those were pieced back together uh, painstakingly into 15 complete vessels which was crazy uh, we found jewelry we found an atlatl potentially an atlatl point which was my favorite part of the experience obviously um and i kind of just learned a level of archaeology that is only talked about in movies Uh, a lot of modern archaeology excavations don't work like that anymore uh they're because if if you're going to excavate ancient rome where is ancient rome in modern rome so you stay in a hotel and you drive Mm -hmm. to the site um that jungle you know mesoamerican archaeology is still pretty rustic in that sense and it was an incredible experience. Uh, I definitely reaffirmed, you know, my love for archaeology. There's been times where people go on such like an experience like that, and they realize, oh, this is not the field for me. Like, I don't want to be spending 
two months without a real shower, um, eating the exact same food all day, every day. Uh, and it's just hot and, and it rained, you know, four days a week, maybe. It was never cooler than 85 or 90 degrees the entire trip, even at night. It was objectively miserable, but you loved it because you love archaeology. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I also love camping. Uh, in fact, right now, during this quarantine, I actually put a tent in my backyard. I've been sleeping in my backyard for the past week, uh, or the past few day, few nights, like three or four, three nights. <laughs> so uh, I was actually Why? supposed to go... Oh, okay, so I was supposed to go <laughs> on... I was supposed to host the 2020 World Atlatl Association World Championships here in Nevada two weeks ago. And it was going to be this big camping extravaganza out of Valley of Fire. I was going to camp out in the desert for six nights um, and then host the tournament during the day with the other board members and such. Because that camp, that event got canceled because of uh, COVID-19, I was robbed of my camping experience and I enjoy the outdoors and I'm sick of being inside. So I decided, you know what, I want to put a tent in my backyard and I did. Um, definitely, I learned to be okay sleeping anywhere after belize uh i had to deal with a pack of howler monkeys in the tree above my hut and howler monkeys are arguably the loudest land mammal on the planet you can hear a single howler monkey howler monkey scream up to three miles away um so even if that pack didn't live in the tree above my hut if there was any pack within three miles they would scream at each other at night uh i had maybe like five or six howler monkeys up in that tree. And then there were three or four other packs in the surrounding three miles. Um, they scream. I I forget the exact, give me one second. I do have a note here on exactly how loud they scream. It is a ridiculous. It's like, if you were right next to them, it's like rock concert level, um, uh, you know, decibels. Uh, yeah. Uh, one second. I know I have it. Right. Okay. So howler monkeys scream at 140 decibels. Yeah, that's like way off the uh, recommended exposure. Tonight. Oh yeah. So oh, you're yeah. trying to, you're trying to sleep in the jungle while this is happening. While there's right. a jet and, engine and that's going just, on above you. And yeah, and, and I would actually. What's interesting is they scream, and I can only describe it as stereo sound. So even though there's only one, you'll hear it in one ear, and then the end of the scream you'll hear it in the other ear. So it sounds like it's moving, like you know, kind of Surround. that Doppler effect. Surround sound, yeah. Um, and yeah, they are ra- crazy loud, but that's just, that's not it. Cause we also had jaguars in that jungle. It's one of the <laughs> last areas that have, yeah. So that have wild jaguars because Belize is really strict about their, um, protection of their, mm-hmm. ra- their jungles. If you look on Google earth and you zoom at the Belize Guatemala border, you can see deforestation real time happening. Um, Guatemala does not protect it in that way. Belize does. It is just this stark straight line of trees. Now, if you zoom in really close, you can see where illegal, like you can actually see this on on Google Earth. You can see where illegal Guatemalan loggers have crossed the border into Belize and jungle and cut down sections of the, um, of the jungle. So from far out, it looks like, oh, it's like perfect. But you scroll and you see they're actually having a problem with illegal loggers and poachers from, from Guatemala come in. So our site is on the border of Guatemala. We actually had the Brazilian Defense Force, the BDF, it's their national army, patrolling our site and escorting and protecting us throughout that time um, because we had, there were, you know, were risks of, of poachers and loggers, you know, discovering us or having issues with that. Uh, there's a huge, actually, it's probably going to be the next big geopolitical conflict in the Americas is Belize and Guatemala. Um, Guatemala believes they have a claim on the country of Belize and it's being currently fought in the uh, in international court. Justin, you heard it here called? first. 
You heard it here yeah. first. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not not that I'm not that I have any specialty in this, but um, the claim is pretty crazy. It's an old claim from back when Britain controlled Belize and and uh, Spain controlled uh, controlled Guatemala, and they're basically enacting it now. They're pressing a claim, uh, and it's in the International Court of Justice. Because they've run right out now. of trees. I mean, I guess so. Well, it's actually because uh, Guatemala has no access to the Gulf Coast. So basically, when when Britain took British Honduras, which is what now is Belize, from Guatemala, uh, for, or from Spain, right? They said, okay, well, if we if you give us Belize, we'll make sure we built a highway from the, the Gulf Coast into Guatemala, and they never did. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Guatemala is saying that because they never held up their end of the deal, Belize, which is now independent of Britain, has to go back to Guatemala uh, because the deal... That's a wild controversy. I doubt that's the way it's going to work. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. Um, In order for it to be... In order for the case to be heard in the International Court of Justice or whatever that's called, uh, there actually needs to be a referendum in Belize where enough Belizeans have to agree to want to go to that court and agree to abide by that court's decision before it can even be heard. So a lot of Belizeans are just like, well, what if we just vote no and we just keep it how it is, right? But some people mm-hmm. in the Belizean government are like, well, if we go to court, we'll probably win. So might as well just go to court and get this over with because then Guatemala has to listen to the court ruling. Uh, but then okay. some people in Belize r- fear it's that if whole... they do go to court, they're going to lose. And they lose. And, then, and that's a whole and controversy. It's a whole controversy. Yeah. So there's an internal conflict politically within Belize on whether to not to even agree to go to show up to court. Uh, there's a lot of crazy. Steps. Yeah. A lot of yeah. Steps. Yeah. Okay, so moving on from our archaeology, I know you yeah, guys. Are... Uh... Just for a little bit of clarification there, though, right now you're 21, right? 22. I just turned 21 in December. Yeah. Okay. How old were How old were you in Belize? I had uh, 20. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because it was it was just last year this time, so I I had just turned 20, um, and yeah, it was a pretty crazy crazy time. Yeah. Well, that's a. I think that was a fantastic. Uh, Archaeology 101 at Lattle 301 <laughs> level course. We just got oh, into yeah. those 20 minutes right there. So that's uh, great, detailed, and curious, and all sorts of super interesting things that most of which completely unfamiliar to me before we talked about it. So thank you so much for sharing all that. Uh, we're now learning we're, through conversation. Learning through conversation, exactly. Uh, but now we're going to shift into uh, what you hinted at at the beginning with lock picking. So despite all of the uh, enthusiasm you just displayed for everything you just talked about you texted me saying that lock picking was actually the most useful skill you ever taught yourself so in spite yeah. of all of this history you just got into for however long this is still the most useful thing you've learned so let's hear a little bit about lock picking how you've learned to do it why you love it some of the fun yeah so i had always heard the stories of my great-grandfather uh being a locksmith and carrying around lock picks with him uh growing up and I'm a big fan of MacGyver, uh, as you can imagine. I'm, you know, I like to consider myself a little bit of a MacGyver yeah, Par for myself. the course, for sure. Yeah. So uh, I said, you know what? I want to learn how to pick locks. And that was a few summers. I don't know. Let's see. That was uh, the summer before my junior school? year of high school. It was in high school. Yeah. It was, it was. I think it was my sophomore year of high school, that summer before junior year. And I decided I wanted to teach myself how to pick locks. So I purchased a lock pick set online. Uh, shout out to Sparrow Lockpicks, like the best lockpicking company on the planet. And they, uh, I bought a little lock that had like a cutaway, it's called a cutaway lock where you can see the pins. It's not clear, but uh, it's machined away so you can see the pins in action. And I taught myself how to pick locks and then I just 
purchased a bunch of padlocks, practiced on those, and then moved on to the locks that were on my house. And I ended up getting really good at it again because I spent, you know, I didn't practice 15 minutes a day for six months. I practiced three hours a day for a week and got as good as I would get in, you know, 15 minutes a day for, mm-hmm. for six months. Um, There's a and I started there. getting really into There's it. There's definitely a learn- lesson there, yeah. Yeah, I definitely, I, I started um, learning how to make my own locks. So if you give me a lock, okay. I can take out the pins and put in custom pins that are like better and, and more secure. Um, and I went down this rabbit hole of learning about different security systems and the history of locks and lock picking uh, and turn that into a speech for a speech and debate. And it did pretty well. And I the kind of point of that speech, though, was how insecure we actually are in America. So mm-hmm. master lock which I'm sure all one, of us have had right some experience. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so everyone has code. some experience. I found it in with, the closet uh, half an hour before you, the interview. Okay, if I you tur- turn, it, turn it around, like there's like a, a keyhole in the back. Oh, no, there's not. It's a different model. Okay, so oh. the cool thing, though, is that if you take a soda can and you shove it into the top, you can actually unlock it. Um, and it takes like maybe like five minutes at the most. Uh, well, it's called a end, shim. We can do a live demonstration. Yeah, yeah. I've got some locks here I can show you guys with. Um, but... It's called a shim, and it basically it's a small piece of metal that goes into the latch that's inside the, the shackle of the padlock, and it depresses the spring-loaded bar that's in there, um, and it pops it open. And, and, and once you have the tool, the shim made, it actually only takes about three to five seconds for it to open. Hmm. Uh, it's pretty crazy. Uh, I would say most 90% of master lock padlocks I can pick in under, under a minute. Maybe under forty-five seconds. That makes you feel uh, real secure, people out there. With yeah, the, and that's and that's ninety percent. Yeah, that's ninety percent. I would say fifty percent. I can pick in under thirty seconds, uh, and then maybe the la- maybe another of that, another fifty percent of that, I could do with a shim 45%. in, yeah, within like ten seconds. Um, so master lock and then quick set which is a common house lock mm-hmm. company like the, the deadbolt on your door is probably a quick set there's mm-hmm. like probably a 40 percent chance that's a quick set uh quick set and master lock are considered the two most insecure easy uh most easily pickable or picked lock companies in the world and they comprise almost all of the american market for locks uh Again, like well, like, like you guys just mentioned, you guys have a bunch of master locks around. I'm sure if you checked your front door, it's a quick set. Yeah, uh, it is. Now the I don't yeah, have to look. it is. It is. Yeah. So my, I mean, even mine are mine are quick set. My back door. Uh, it's definitely a problem. And what's interesting is that Europe doesn't have this problem. So if you bought a ten dollar lock, a ten dollar padlock in America, it would probably be a master lock, right? Uh, in fact, I actually, it's probably going to be a master lock model 140, which is like one of the most common types of master lock. That's the one I can shim in about two or three seconds. So master lock model 140, $10 lock here in, here in the United States. A $10 lock in Germany will have the security <laughs> equivalence of a $140 padlock purchased in the United States, roughly. So for the same amount of money, you're getting a drastically more secure lock. Why is that? Two reasons. One, they're machined to hire quality uh so there's like less of a a margin of error in the machining itself but the main thing is that there's different shapes of pins and i'm i don't want to get into like how a lock works exactly Mm -hmm. but there's different types of pins inside and in america they're all smooth shafted pins so like they're cylinders they're smooth cylinders basically smooth cylinders are really easy to pick because there's nothing difficult about them they're smooth they slide up and down really easily in 
you can buy pins that are shaped like spools of thread that have serrations that have cuts that are roughed up like filed basically to have rough texture that causes the picker to screw up in the picking process and basically like have false positives or false negatives when they're picking um almost all locks in europe are manufactured and come with out of the box high-end what we call them security pins whether they're spools whether they're serrations whether they're mushroom pins um they come with that automatically. Whereas in America, that's almost unheard of. There's you, you cannot really buy for under a hundred dollars, a lock out of the box. That's going to come with security pins. So what I, mean, I did was I replaced all the padlocks around my house with, cause I, I remember, like I mentioned, I learned how to pin my own locks. Yeah, I so purchased sec, yeah, security pins and change them. Yeah. I did the same. I can do the same with my quick sets basically. So even though it's a quick set brand inside, it's like, you know, hundreds of dollars worth of, you know, <laughs> Uh, gear inside basically mm-hmm. on the exterior it's just a cheap uh deadbolt though i mean locks in general are a, a very old concept like where would the disconnect be between um like you explained why the the european models are, are better but why would at, at what point was there a disconnect you know what i mean capitalism okay there, there's a desire to if you machine them to lower specifications it's cheaper mm-hmm. it is more expensive to make things better so, I mean, if you think about, like, why is a Swiss watch, right, so expensive? It's because, well, Swiss culture is, like, super precise, and they machine it to perfect specifications. Same thing in, like, you know, it, and I bring up Germany a lot because Germany manufactures most of the padlocks for the rest of the world that aren't manufactured in the United States. Um, so Schlage is a very common company. Now, there are cheaper models of Schlage. It's a, a German lock. But there are, like, you know, a $50 Schlage padlock is incredible you know what i mean or like uh or abis is really good as well so there are these other other european companies that are really good mm-hmm. um but the disconnect is just like people want to make things cheaply uh and now i challenge everyone to go to the local hardware store like go to ace hardware go to home depot go to lowe's try to find something that's not a master lock you're not going to be able to master lock is the ubiquitous like the the it's the the lock company in the united states we are being forced to purchase bad locks because you cannot find any other brand of lock in the stores like you can go you know if you find another brand of lock it's gonna be like an unbranded you know like padlock at walmart it's gonna be even worse than the master lock but you cannot find like a regular like a good padlock in a modern american store uh and i'm sure there's some contract that master lock has with home depot to only sell master lock because I've never seen another brand of padlock at Home Depot besides Master Lock. So we're being forced to purchase bad, bad products. That is super interesting. Uh, we'll see if I get sued by Master Lock later. Sidebar there, right? Uh, so you, uh, you actually they're not going to listen to this. Yeah, you got so good at locksmithing that you're the on-call locksmith for your school for a year. How did, how yeah. did that come about? So my senior year of high school, I was doing that lock picking speech. So I was bringing my lock picks to campus a lot, and was showing teachers and stuff like that. And it started with my AP US history teacher. She had locked the drawer on her desk, like, you know, those teacher drawers, basically. And I happened to have my picks with me. So she knew I had these picks. She actually called me out of, or she told me to come in during lunch and pick the lock for her. So I came in and I picked it in like, I don't know, 10 or or 15 seconds. And (laughs) she told some of the other teachers uh, in like the staff, you know, break room or whatever. And then a few days later, I got a note that was like, go to the library and bring your lockpicks. And that was like out of my AP government class. And my AP government teacher 
looked at the note and she like she's like this can't be real like are you kidding me <laughs> so i went to the library and the li- librarian had locked um it was we had a new librarian that year and she's like these two cabinets i've never been able to open like i received them locked from the mm-hmm. previous librarian who didn't have the key and again i was able to open them in like you know maybe 30 40 seconds uh and then that kind of just progressed uh i had science teachers asking me to unlock science cabinets and uh i would i mean yeah for the rest of that year uh particularly second semester senior year maybe once a week or once every other week there would be a note from the front office that would go to my and they would always call me out of my ap government class i don't know why it was just like it always happened that time that's that last period of the day and my government teacher would be like, Angelo, you have to go pick another lock. So I'd grab my set and I'd go to whatever classroom it said. Uh, and they would just have me That's hilarious. pick locks. So I never like uh, fixed or changed any locks for them or rekeyed locks because that's something done by the district. Uh, what's interesting is that, so the particularly at Clark High School, and I've noticed at almost every other high school in Las Vegas, they use uh, Schlage Everest locks for the classroom doors, which are some of the best for a long time, it was considered an unpickable lock mm-hmm. um, because it has it doesn't just have pins that go vertically. It has pins that go horizontally as well. So you have to pick vertically and horizontally. Uh, and it's just, it's almost impossible. You have to have a very specialty tool. So eventually, lock pickers developed and started selling specialty tools to pick uh, uh, Schlage Everest. But I find it interesting that, you know, the rest of American society can't get better than a quick set on any door. But like Clark County School District was able to afford some of the most expensive, highest-end, like, most secure locks. It's good to know. Uh, for it's every single tour. Good to, yeah, good to know for sure. I went uh, to Clark County Schools. It's good to know. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely interesting. Because uh, I always had friends like, oh, could you break into teachers' classrooms? I'm like, I actually cannot do that because they just purchased a top-end German-made lock for every door. Uh, but yeah, that's how I became the on-call locksmith. I would help teachers unlock stuff that they got locked out of, especially cabinets. Well, that's fantastic. That that's is an awesome really story. cool. Uh, and we'll get into some of these kind of common themes towards the end from these different projects. But the next thing is uh, your podcast and sampling music history. Uh, I guess first fun questioner, what are kind of your inspirations for music, artists, genres, and then yeah. how you got into this? And, let's and then something to say real quick. And then what does music archaeology mean to you or, or sampling archaeology? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So uh... sample excavation. Yeah. <laughs> so my music passions come from my parents uh my dad was a vinyl dj in the 80s in mexico and south texas northern mexico and south texas and he played mostly um disco 80 early 80s hip-hop uh and r&b basically and he would do different parties around south texas south padre island which is a common like spring break spot now but that's where he grew up born and raised uh in brownsville and south padre and he also dj'd at a nightclub in mexico uh perhaps underage don't tell anybody uh when he was in high school so he was he was djing at this nightclub and then he moved to las vegas and he became a radio dj um he was one of the first if not the first spanish-speaking fm radio hosts in uh las vegas so even though he didn't go to unlv he was hired by kunv which is the, the the campus radio station to do a spanish radio show uh where he played a lot of latin music uh, or latin inspired music and he'll tell you i don't know how true this is but he'll tell you he was the first person in las vegas to play uh gloria estefan in the miami sound machine on in, on radio in las vegas uh because he was the only latin dj at the time radio dj so he has a massive record collection and old 
vintage, amazing quality DJ soft, DJ uh, equipment. My mom worked at a record store in the early 90s. Uh, she comes, she's a little bit younger than my dad, has definitely more of an 80s pop, ska, new wave, punk uh, type of vibe. So between the two of them, I inherited a crazy record collection. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of records, 12 inches, 12 inch singles, 45s, hundreds of CDs, cassettes. Plus, I think we have like four or five different turntables in the house, um, you know, DJ equipment, things like that. And I developed a passion for music, particularly older music of the, you know, of mm-hmm. my parents' generation uh, from a really, really young age and then taught myself how to DJ in eighth grade. And then I started DJing the school dances in eighth grade DJed assemblies, uh, parties, uh, different school functions in high school, and then was hired to do quinceaneras, sweet sixteens. I've done a couple weddings, things like that. Um, throughout weddings, all of that, cool. though, yeah. yeah, yeah, and and because I had an ear for older music, because I grew up listening to a lot of this old funk, R and B, soul, disco. When I listened to modern music, I started noticing uh, these. At the, you know, at the time, I didn't know what they were, but samples, basically. And the mm-hmm. first one I ever noticed, it was uh, S.O.S. by Rihanna, which I think came out in 2006, if I remember correctly. So that song samples Tainted Love by Soft Cell. Uh, Soft Cell was an 80s band, and it's, that's, the song Tainted Love is actually their cover of the song called Tainted Love by this other artist, and I forget the name of it. So I was familiar with the original Tainted Love, and... You know, I'm not. I didn't listen to a lot of pop, but I heard that song by by Rihanna, and I asked my mom, I was like, "What the heck is this?" And I was 2006. I was like eight years old, I think, eight or nine years old. And she goes, "Oh, it's like a sample." And I didn't know what that was, but once she ex- explained it, I then went through all the records we had at the house, and I started like piecing together all these samples. So I, you know, heard "Ice Ice Baby" by Vanilla Ice and mm-hmm. and uh, "Under Pressure" by Queen, which everyone knows. But started finding these things or Sheik's Good Times and Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang. And I just started putting together this, like, I was fascinated. I just couldn't believe that you could repurpose old music and turn it into new music. I thought that was the absolute coolest thing ever. Mm-hmm. And I just became obsessed, and it's an obsession I had ever since. And then in high school, I uh, my freshman year for a speech and debate competition, I did a speech on the history of sampling and, and music history uh, through a lens of sampling. And through DJing, I kind of explored that as well because when I was DJing parties, like a lot of our my generation, our generation isn't as familiar with samples. Uh, like, you know, I'm sure you guys have both heard uh, the, the uh, uh, TED big Talk, pa- Big Papa. No, 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 Big Papa by okay. Notorious B.I.G. Right? Mm-hmm. Or, or Hypnotized by Notorious B.I.G. You guys both familiar with that song? Yeah. But like, are you guys familiar? Yeah, but yeah, uh, exactly. I only know um, this from your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is okay. Here's the thing. That's why I made the podcast. I'm like, that's the whole point. Yeah. So, so I, I realized though a lot of people don't know that. So as I was DJing, yeah, parties, that episode was awesome. I like that a lot. It's yeah, that's my favorite episode, the Isley Brothers episode. Um, but I realized that like my, especially when I was DJing mixed parties that had like parents and kids with it, uh, I loved mixing the like the original sample and then transitioning that into the modern hip hop song or whatever that used that. Uh, that's, yeah, that's and then sweet. like. Yeah, and then, like, the dance floor kind of has this, like, cultural consciousness moment where, like, oh, wait a second. Like, the parents are like, oh, I know the original song, and they're connecting it with the younger song. And the kids are like, oh, I know the young song, and are connecting it with the older song. Uh, and I would just kind of jump decades like that. So I would play, like, a song from the 70s, a song from the 90s that samples that song from the 70s, a song from the 2010s that samples the song from the 90s, and then back mm-hmm. to a song from the 60s and restart the whole thing over again. Um, and jump around like that. And 
just had a deeper, I, I felt like I had a deeper appreciation for modern music, understanding the samples and where it came from. And it was actually in the Stick Hut in Belize. This is a weird what, wraparound way to get there. <laughs> but it was one night I was with my hut mate. Uh, his name is Eric hut Fries. It's like, yeah. yeah, brilliant archaeologist. And we were just chatting at night because we had nothing better to do. And we realized we like, liked similar types of hip hop. And I told him, I said, hey, do you know, like, where the song comes from. And I explained to him, like, the history of that sample. And then I explained to him the history of um, of, of hip-hop through sampling, like, in the 1970s, from mm-hmm. start to finish. We had this conversation for, like, 30 minutes. I kind of gave him the lecture. whole lecture. I like... gave him the whole lecture. And at the end of that, he... And we had talked about my love for podcasts, and we could talk about other, like, podcasts that I'm obsessed with. But mm-hmm. um, we had talked about it already, so he knew I was into podcasts. And he said, Angelo, I just need you to know that you need to turn this into a podcast. Like, what you just gave to me without any notes, you had all this memorized, like... Just off the top of your head, yeah. Yeah, because I didn't have, you know, we didn't have any electronic, I couldn't look up these anything, you know, anything, but I still had dates, albums, producers, uh, samples, like, all of this in my head, because over the past 15 years, I have just built a catalog in my head of these samples. And I was able to tell him this story, and he was kind of blown away and told me, you need to make a podcast. And that's where the idea for Sample Excavator, which is the name of my podcast, came from, Oh, okay. Well, it's like, okay, I want to Because you're literally on an excavation. You're out doing oh. an yeah. excavation. Well, okay, so in music culture, in DJ culture, looking for samples is called crate digging. And in archaeology, excavating is called digging. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also my Instagram handle is I dig it, um, or I dig it first, actually. So it kind of all just made sense to call mm-hmm. it, to combine archaeology, music. They both, archaeology and music both share this thing and ca- calling their means of discovery digging that like that's what they each call their mode of discovery so it's just it worked perfectly um so that summer i put in the work to make you know the album art and find a podcast host and i started writing out scripting the episode found a producer the wonderful guy tannenbaum shout out to guy uh and over the in the fall semester i decided to publish it and it's going great so far i've had pretty good success uh I am starting to work with a company called Tracklib. They are the largest. I heard the first twenty minutes or so of that interview. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, Tracklib is the largest digital music sampling company in the world. So if a modern artist, they basically cut the middleman out of sampling. They're trying uh, to democratize to... sampling, make it yeah, easier. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do it, to do so, it legally. Legally, exactly. Normally, you have to like ask the artist permission, pay a lot of legal fees. Uh, and do all that. They do that ahead of time. They basically go to artists and they say, like older artists, they that's say, kind hey, of ironic that they're we... democratizing it by adding a middleman, which is that's kind of funny. But well, they're, they're taking out they're taking out two middlemans, adding one, right? Because now yeah. the original artist doesn't need a lawyer, and the sampling artist doesn't need a lawyer, because now you have two artists and two lawyers. Uh, but now you just need two artists and Tracklib, and Tracklib does everything for you. So. They are working with me. I'm working on a few other projects with them right now. Their sample breakdown series, which is amazing. You can check it out on Instagram. Uh, they basically show you where sample chops come from. It's like incredible. So I'm working with them on coming up with like new ideas for that. And uh, I interviewed, like you mentioned, I interviewed their CEO, Per Omquist, for uh, a special episode of Sample Excavator a few, that came out a few weeks ago. Uh, and I'm interviewing a producer on Tuesday. I think it's on Tuesday. Uh, his name's Dotson. And he is a producer who has used more Tracklib samples than any other producer. Okay. Uh, yeah. And then artists who have used Tracklib include uh, like J. Cole, Brockhampton, uh, DJ Khaled, like pretty big names who are using mm-hmm. the service because Absolutely. it makes it easier to, to sample. 
Um, but yeah, the, the podcast is like, I just want to be able to give, especially my generation, a deeper appreciation for, for music. I feel like you don't really know the message Biggie is trying to express unless you understand the sample that he's using. The purpose of my podcast is not to make everybody a fan of the Isley Brothers, because the fact of the matter is people in our generation aren't going to be that interested in the Isley Brothers. They're a 40-year-old band. Even if I love the Isley Brothers, or even if I love Parliament Funkadelic, or like these old funk bands, I'm not trying to make, I'm not trying to bring that back. I'm not delusional, right? Mm -hmm. That's not my point. The point is that in order to understand and appreciate modern music, you need to understand where that came from, because that artist is making that sample, not just because it sounds cool right not just because it sounds cool they're they're trying to convey a message um Mm -hmm. or at least most of them do in Mm -hmm. especially in the 90s uh because biggie was very aware that he was sampling the isley brothers kendrick lamar is one of the most recent artists to sample the isley brothers uh he sampled uh the isley brothers song that lady uh from their 1977 i think it's 1977 uh release and he sampled it for the, his song I off of To Pimp a Butterfly, T-Pab. And he actually flew to St. Louis to ask Ronald Isley himself per personal permission to sample the song. That tells you that obviously sampling the Isley Brothers meant so much to Kendrick that he wanted to ask, like, you know, kiss the ring and ask permission from Isley himself. Uh, so obviously, like, how could you claim to understand the full weight of that song, Right the full meaning of that song, if you don't understand the full meaning of the pr- production of that song uh, and ha- and understanding the Isley Brothers behind that. So that's the point of my podcast. That's what I'm trying to instill with people is just this greater appreciation for, uh, you know, that the, the samples that make our modern music landscape. That's really, really interesting. Um, it's, it's very obvious to me, um, and I hope our listeners, all of the intersections of, of your different passions. Um, I think one of them that's kind of outside of that uh, is rock climbing. Um, could you tell us a little bit about rock climbing and, and why you got into that when it's kind of away from your um, other uh, interests? Yeah, for sure. Um, sorry, I just want to mention one last thing about that, uh, the samples that I forgot to of bring course. up. That, that long 30-minute lecture that I gave to my friend Eric in the hut in the jungle, that exactly became episodes nine and ten a two-part finale for Mm -hmm. uh, the first season of my show so if you guys are interested the history of hip-hop uh like for example do you guys know where the term breakdancing comes from i do not so there is a part of funk songs called the break where the the melody and the melody in like the top section kind of falls away and just the bassist and the drummer jams for like a four-bar fill DJs in the 70s realized that if you looped that fill, like people like dancing to that fill more than like dancing to the rest of the disco song uh, or the funk song. So they would just focus on that like isolated drum break part and then people would dance during the break and they were the break dancers. So uh, people then realized though that like just looping that break over and over for 10 minutes is just as boring as the rest of the song is. So they started giving people microphones uh, to freestyle over the break and that's what hip hop and rap is so that is a 45 second uh history of hip hop which you can hear in it's all 30 minute glory uh at the end of my the the first season of sample expert really recommend anybody like even if you're not going to listen to the whole podcast fine just listen to those episodes because there's a lot of like racial tensions in music uh that are still prevalent and that Mm -hmm. i bring up a lot in like the history of music uh and there's this pattern of a minority having a 
level of struggle music that is then co-opted by the white mainstream and then capitalized and then the capitalization of that music basically undermines the message so the, the minority needs to create a new struggle music a new underground and that cycle continues over and over and over and over and over again and those type of cycles of, of trends and things that are popular and not popular and uh mainstream and not mainstream we see in archaeology as well. It's something, again, a thing that like comes mm-hmm. back because archaeology is about human culture, right? Uh, so, yeah, and you know, you're human culture, the culture, right? The trends the of, of culture for how that facilitates how that happens. So, music. yeah, that's the one where it's like where people get the most out of is those two episodes. So those are the ones I'd sure. recommend. That's the last thing I wanted to say. Yeah. I just forgot to mention that that conversation comes full circle as the finale to the to the first season. Yeah, well, I bet if people listen to those two episodes, they're probably gonna end up listening to a lot more of the show because hopefully that's but, that's yeah. the that's the goal. But okay, rock climbing. You asked about rock climbing. Uh, yeah, so I got into rock climbing uh, freshman year of college. My oh, friend this is, James. This is kind of recent. This is like a new. Yeah, one. It's, it's this is definitely like my most recent hobby. I believe uh, rock climbing and disc golf. I think are my two most recent okay. hobbies. Um, I sound really white right there. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so rock climbing started, I started, uh, January of my freshman year. My friend James Wood was, uh, started climbing before that and said, hey, you should come to the climbing gym with me. And if you can't tell, I was a nerd in high school, so mm-hmm. I didn't really do... This is the first uh, physical activity. Yeah, I mean, at Lattle exactly. Lattle physical, but it's a little different. No, at Lattle throwing doesn't count. Uh, this, like, I did not do any sport in high school. Uh, I haven't played an organized sport yeah. since elementary school, probably. Yeah, that's about, about, about right. Since you built the rock museum. You had to quit your sports career to build out the music. To rock build the rock museum, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you're not even wrong about that in the slightest. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I decided, you know what, I'll try it. So I went with him, and I ended up falling in love with it. And I think the reason I like rock climbing is because it's as much mental as it is physical. Because, uh, like, if I was, you know, to grab a baseball glove and throw a ball back and forth, I can think about other things. Like, I don't have to. Th- put 100% of my thought into throwing and catching or playing any other sport really. But when you're on a vertical wall or even upside down on a wall, you know, I've seen some of your Instagram up. videos with the inversion. Yeah. Or it's, it, that's the, my favorite. The it's the negative grade. Yeah. It's, it's called, it's called, it. called overhang overhang. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So overhang climbing is like my favorite type of climbing. Um, when you're up there, you are zeroed in. Like you are mental. 100% of your mental capacity is focused on keeping you on the wall. There is no wandering. It's like the only time in my life that I'm not thinking about 20 things at once. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, because everything else, I'm kind of, you know, even as I'm, you know, doing something, writing an episode of Sample Excavator, I'm thinking about archaeology. I'm doing archaeology. I'm thinking about lockpicking. I'm doing lockpicking. I'm thinking about samples. Um, but in rock climbing, I can only think about rock climbing. But also... Otherwise you fall. The, <laughs> otherwise you fall. Otherwise you fall. And if you fall, you can seriously injure yourself. So... The other thing with rock climbing is that, uh, particularly in bouldering, we call them problems, boulder problems, yeah, I've heard, because I've heard uh, you need to find a. There's not really necessarily one solution always, and it's like a puzzle. So you need to figure out, like, okay, here's the starting move. Mm-hmm. Well, how do I get to the next move? How do I get to the next move? Or sometimes you start from the top. Okay, I wanna, if I want to end here, how do I get there from the bottom? Uh, so it's like a puzzle. It's a very mental thing as well. And then rock climbing is also a lot of technique. Uh, and I love being able to nerd out about like te- technical stuff. I can so, see that. yeah. So there's like <laughs> very specific, <laughs> very specific like foot technique and understanding your own body weight and body positioning is really important. And a lot of first time climbers try to th- they think that you just have to like do pull ups on the wall constantly, mm-hmm. but 
you trust actually rock climb. You trust your legs. You rock climb like you climb a ladder. You climb a ladder with your legs. You rock climb with your legs. Now, if you are upside down, that's that's a different story. When you're doing an overhang climb, you are relying primarily on your arms. But for most climbing, you're going to be using your legs. Climb with your legs. Uh, so I kind of like the technical aspect of it. Uh, but what's interesting is because I have absolutely zero background in physical activity and basically zero musculature at all. Uh, what's held me back in climbing the most is actually the like the actual strength building aspect of it. Like I can understand advanced climbing techniques, but I can't do them because I'm just not strong enough to do them um, necessarily. So that's been the really like most interesting thing where like I'm going to be satisfied with rock climbing when I can do some of these like techniques or harder technical climbs, but it's going to take like so much more time to like actually work out to mm-hmm. do that. Um, and it's not really helping that I'm, you know, in quarantine right now. I'm trying to do as many weighted pull-ups and finger hangs as yeah. possible. Um, I actually carved my own pinch blocks two days ago because um, I was bored and had some extra wood lying around from at Lattles. So pinch blocks are like... Training uh, specific you, grips? or Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, they're just different distances of pinches made out of wood. And then I drilled it all with this big hook that I attach a carabiner to that attaches to a paracord that's wrapped around weights so I can attach weights and then practice like these really small uh, pinches. And then I have, I carved my own hangboard, uh, which is like this thing that goes on a wall that has mm-hmm. these slots for your fingers. So you're putting your entire body weight off of just maybe a half inch or a quarter inch or an inch of your finger. Um, and then doing pull-ups off of those yeah. tiny little ledges. Or that's probably better than or- practicing on a door frame. Oh yeah, door frames are gonna break for sure. Yeah, uh, so I took one of those like, uh, uh, like you know those like those iron what is it called the Iron Man pull up bar yeah, just, thing just that goes in the back home, of the door, door home pull up bar. bar. Yeah. yeah, and uh, I attached the wooden apparatus to that basically, and then I have these things called rock rings that I actually brought to the jungle in Belize with me, and they're kind I of like I think I've seen those. They have those rock climbing gyms, right? Uh, sometimes oh, uh, depends okay. on the climbing gym. I've seen them. Like, yeah, they're, they're, I'm sure there's at climbing gyms sometimes, but. They basically, they're like Olympic rings, but mm-hmm. instead of being a ring, they actually have rock climbing holds on them. Yeah, so I'll do some stuff like that uh, at home as well, as much as I can. But mm-hmm. yeah, the, the learning curve for rock climbing is unlike anything else I've ever done. Well, Most I things think... I can just dedicate. Yeah, I was going to say, like like you said, uh, on lockpicking, you take took six days of three hours a day of work and you're there, but you can't do a full body recomposition of you know getting skeletal muscle mass and losing body fat and getting flexibility in three hours a day six for six days you need that 15 minutes yeah. a day for six months uh which i, mean, I you can am, only put on really, two, le- two pounds of lean muscle a month is roughly so yeah which is like not great for me because i don't have the attention span to to stick to that kind of level of workout uh because mm-hmm. for me like I, because i don't use like i don't really care that much about physical fitness outside of rock climbing it's been really hard for me to dedicate that time to put in the effort because uh, I'm too like obviously I've gotten way stronger over the last two years of climbing but um, definitely sometimes I regret not starting a, like a weighted training regimen early in my climbing career mm-hmm. uh, that would have helped out but I something I bring up a lot when I especially when I like help new people climb who've never climbed before uh, is that climbing is exponential so there's grades in climbing. Uh, the colors. And each, the, uh, yeah, in some gyms they call it colors, but they're grades, uh, called climbing grades. And they in bouldering specifically, it goes from V0 to uh, V10 indoors generally, and then up to like V15 or 16 outdoors. And 
most people within their first two climbing sessions can get to like v1 v2 so they jump v0 v1 v2 pretty easily Mm -hmm. and then it takes double that amount of time to get to v3 and then double that amount of time to get to v4 etc etc so uh a lot of people get to a point where they're kind of plateauing like they're stuck on like v5 for like a year uh or v6 for like a year and it's because it takes like three years to move on from that uh, there's also like an endurance factor where because in climbing you're relying almost solely on your forearm muscles, which is not something that most people work out ever, um, to hold yourself on the wall. Those are really hard to train for endurance. Like it's it's a really weird muscle to train. Um, so I was actually at a screen a special screening of a climbing documentary that followed the six or like six or seven of the top strongest female outdoor climbers in the world. I mean we're talking absolute elite level athletes and one of the climbers uh featured in the film was actually there at the screening and answered a q a and somebody asked like oh i'm stuck like my endurance level is stuck i'm kind of at this like v5 level how can i move past that and she goes how long have you been climbing and he goes uh two years and she says not even long enough she's like you shouldn't even be worried about like your endurance development until you've been climbing four to five years so there's this like weird thing where in order to even reach this upper level of climbing, you need to just climb without even any extra training stuff for like five years. And there's not many other sports where it takes five years just to reach like an intermediate to advanced stage. Like most, you know, most sports you can get good at. You can't really hack it, you know? Yeah, you can't really hack it. Like even basketball, like if I wanted to pick up basketball, right? I bet with five years time, I could learn how to be a good three-point shooter, right? Like Mm -hmm. five years. But uh, I could probably do that in, if I set a goal for like, or like maybe free throw, right? Like if mm-hmm. I set like a seventy percent free throw percentage goal, if I did that for two like a year or two, I could probably pull that out. Like most people could do that mm-hmm. if they put the time in. But climbing is like this weird thing because that forearm muscle takes so long to develop. Uh, that the best training for climbing is just climbing for those first five years, and then after that time period is kind of when you start doing those like specialty advanced. Like you'll strap you know twenty, thirty, forty pounds on you, and then crank on your fingers for an hour in order to build that muscle stronger but that's one of the most frustrating things that it's just not a fast sport uh to develop and that's been what's kind of keeping me going fascinating distinction between that and everything else you've done and that yeah other physical activities that you'd think would be similar just because they involve your body but right right yeah so yeah and it's just that specific muscle and obviously my forearm has has you know beefed up in the last two years but uh, I still like am frustrated that my endurance isn't where it should be or where mm-hmm. I think it should be. But then it seems like it, from it your takes things like that. You really can't. You, you just got to trust the process. Exactly, exactly. And, and and it wasn't until that screening that happened. Uh, I think it was in January, uh, where I met that climber. And when she said that, it kind of just clicked. I was like, okay, well, I need to just calm down. Like it's it's going to come with time. It's not you. It's, it's not, not me. It's just the thought that I have to wait another three years to get to some of my climbing goals is like. Mm-hmm frustrating but you know excruciating for you yeah 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 because i just want to go i just want to do it uh there's some you know obviously we're in las vegas we're one of the top climbing destinations in the world red rock Rock climbing yeah red rock red rock canyon is i mean probably top three top five for sure maybe top three most visited rock climbing locations in the country and considered one of the best desert sandstorm climbing locations in the world. Uh, every time I go out to Red Rock, I meet a different climbing group from a different country that says, we flew out here just to climb Red Rock for a week and then we're flying back. Uh, so I've met people from all over the world who come just for that. So I'm like, have, you know, thousands and thousands of world-class tier routes and boulder problems in my backyard, literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and during this quarantine, I'm not able to go climb, but also that it's going to take a long time for me to work through all that. Uh, so I am sure. kind of like a blessing and a curse because it's it's kind of teasing me because it's right there, uh, which is the curse part. But the blessing is that it's so close. I don't have to travel for yeah, world-class absolutely. climbing. Cool. So uh, let's kind of go into some broader themes on these self-education projects and everything like that. Can you tell us about your 68% rule? Yeah. So I kind of alluded to it a little bit, but mm-hmm. I – because uh, that's kind of a theme for some of these side projects that aren't like your full, full. Well, so actually right. these are kind of your main focuses, but some things that you do outside of the scope of this, you've kind of yeah. determined a rule for uh, yeah. how, it, far, how far is good enough. Exactly, exactly. So for me, whenever I pick up like a smaller side hobby, um, I like to get what I consider to be 68% good at it, which is not like 68% good in relation to the general population. Um, because 68% is one standard deviation above the mean. And that kind of ensures that in any situation that I walk into, if it's something that I've practiced in the past, in that group, within that group of people, there's like a decent chance I'll be as good or better than 70% of the people there. Uh, and I realized that, I mean, that kind of makes me sound like a little bit of like a comparative asshole, like that mm-hmm. I'm always comparing myself to other people or like really competitive. It's not that I'm competitive. I just like having a lot of skills and I like being able to do a lot of things. So I don't want to be caring to be new... the best at everything, which is you're not going to, you know, you'll get stuck playing billiards for three years trying to get the absolute best at that. And you can't really move yeah. on. Right, right, right. And that's exactly it. Like I don't, it's a stopping you know, point. Right. And, and I don't try to pretend like I'm the best at any of these things. Cause I'm not like even at ladles, like there's no way, um, like maybe at ladle knowledge, like I know more than, most people, I mean, more than most people, but... You're probably like, two standard deviations away. <laughs> you're at well, no. okay, so I'll put it this way. I'll put it this way. There are, by my last count, only in five, four actively publishing archaeologists that specialize in the atlatl in the world. Okay, so you're out um, there. Yeah, and I'm <laughs> friends with all four of them, like, pretty closely. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. talk all the time. Uh, in fact, they were. there's going to be a special... At Lattle Symposium at the Society for American Archaeology Conference, which is going to happen in next week or in two weeks in Austin, Texas, which is being canceled now. Very disappointed because I was going to be able to go. We're just going to be able to nerd out about At Lattles, like all five of us for an hour. Um, <clears throat> but no, with other things like 68%, because I want to do as many things as possible, that's kind of just a good benchmark because it's proficient. Like it's it's not going to be the best. I'm not going to be the best in any situation, but at least I'm not going to be a noob in every any situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of my my concept for that. So things I've done that for are like table tennis, uh, billiards, like a lot of bar games, bar sports for some reasons. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know. I just got into that for a while. Uh, maybe it's because my great grandfather owned a bar, like like yeah. I mentioned at the top. <laughs> like back maybe to him. potentially, potentially, yeah, potentially. Uh, in fact, the so the bar that he founded is still in my family it's called the wheel bar in estes park colorado which is like basically my favorite place it, it's my second favorite place to climb besides las vegas uh and it's one of my favorite places in the world besides las vegas as well um and they have like you know dark classic bar games dartboard mm-hmm. shuffleboard old shuffleboard table billiards uh so how do but, you approach no, I definitely... getting that to that 68 percent in those skills like how do yeah, you so yourself those I things to that level? do that like three hours a day for a week type of thing for those type of things or as much as I can. So for billiards, like that was like senior year of high school, freshman year of college, two or three days a week, two or three hours or like an hour, two hours a day at a pool hall somewhere and just practice. Uh, table tennis, same thing. Uh, I have a dartboard at home, so I was able to just do that at home, get decently okay. Uh, 
also just like weird stuff like i t- wanted to teach myself how to roll a coin across my knuckles because i thought that was cool uh I saw that, that took on TV once yeah that took w- longer than i expected that's actually a really kind of difficult thing to do the dexterity um i like things that focus on finger or hand dexterity so lock picking was one of those like started mm-hmm. as that and i would definitely say i pushed lock picking to like the 80th percentile 85th percentile maybe um but yeah you know at laddles and like woodworking stuff as well carving mm-hmm. hand carving uh just kind of small stuff djing is something that i've pushed a little bit higher i would say most things i push higher than 68 percent. it's just that i'm satisfied once i get to the 68 percent. okay and then if you choose uh, but to go I, further, you can but you don't feel yeah and to, i think you don't feel like you in quit almost everything i've pushed further than 68 percent uh i believe i can't think of anything off the top of my head that i really just act like okay i'm at 68 percent. i'm gonna stop and mm-hmm. obviously it's impossible to know whether whether you're at 68 percent or not it's just kind of like a gut feeling like i started going to a pool with friends for some reason at clark high school my senior year it got really popular to go to a pool hall because there's a there was an under 21 pool hall right next to Clark High School. Okay. And those are pretty uncommon. Like, you can't find pool halls like that, really, ever. Mm-hmm. So it became the place to hang out on weekends because There's we were young and had nowhere else to do. Yeah. yeah. Vegas, um, underage, it's a thing. Yeah. It's a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, so I just started being better than most of the friends I went with. And I was like, okay, I'm probably there. This is, and, this is probably uh, working. This is probably working. This is probably where I'll stop. And then I moved on yeah. to something else. Yeah, I think uh, it's a, it's a yeah. good benchmark. It's kind of like um, some people have the rule where if they start a book, they read 100 pages before they decide whether or not they'll stop. It's just like... Oh, yeah. It's, it's 100 pages minus your age. That's when, you're, that's when, you, can uh, sit, that's, that's when you can stop. I, I'm kind of like weird. I'll read the first 10 pages and the last 10 pages, and then I'll be like, okay, I'll read this book. Even if it's <laughs> fiction? Uh. I'm talking about fiction. I'm not even talking about nonfiction. Really? Yeah. I, it kind of ruins ending? it at the Well, usually the last 10 pages are like after the actual conclusion. You know what I mean? Like it's like kind of uh, like more of an, like an epilogue type of thing. Okay. If you think about it, it's like it's like a resolution type of thing, but it doesn't really give away too much of the, the plot. But I kind of just want to see where it goes a little bit. That's bizarre. And I'll do that for a few different... I haven't done that for every book, but I've definitely mm-hmm. done that for quite a few books that I've like decided to read. Yeah. So I guess that's a good transition into our kind of general, not thematic round of final questions here. Uh, what are some of your favorite books that you've read that are most impactful to you or just that you've most enjoyed? Yeah, so... Uh, that can be on topic of things we've talked about or completely yeah. new directions. I was going to give you I was gonna give you a couple of both. So, Last Night, A DJ Saved My Life by Bill Brewster and Frank Bruton. Uh, it is the absolute best single volume on the history of uh, sampling, DJing, and music possibly ever written it not about sampling necessarily it it, so it tracks the impact that the industry of djing has on the development of different musical genres throughout history um and the history of djing itself it is by far the like the my favorite thing i've ever read i Mm -hmm. i reference it all the time it is the number one reference material for my podcast whenever like oh i need to remember which DJ did this, I can look at that book and it's like a, the perfect reference. But it's written in a series of interviews and narrative. Like, it's it's a collection of interviews, but then there's like narration in between. It's incredible. Absolutely. If you like music at all, uh, definitely recommend. It goes from the 1940s or 50s all the way up until the late 1990s. Um, but it focuses primarily on the 70s 80s 70s 60s 70s and 80s or 70s and 80s specifically that transition that like the invention of disco which was a huge thing um and that those chapters of that book 
are what I developed into that uh, finale episode that I talked about earlier for my podcast. Uh, and I cite them in that, in that episode as being the inspiration for that. And I kind of took a lot of the stories they talked about, the people they interviewed, and then I extrapolated upon that and added the music for my podcast. So that book, they have a follow-up book called uh, The Record Players, and that one is just the interviews. So it's the inter- some of the interviews that they had in that first book and then like an extra 20 or 30 interviews they had with other people in the music industry that talk about the impact of DJing and sampling on the history of music. Um, so those two books in conjunction are pretty good. Uh, and then on the other side of things, uh, A Theory of Justice by John Rawls, 1971, that is has informed more of my like philosophy and politics than anything else. So I'm actually a philosophy major as well. So I'm an anthropology philosophy double major. Um, and John Rawls is my, my favorite philosopher. Uh, yeah, I admit definitely has some flaws, but uh, like I think what he has to say about what justice and fairness is and what equality is. And he offers a framework called, or like a thought experiment called the veil of ignorance that will allow you to determine whether the action you're about to take is truly fair for all parties or not. Uh, and I, it's something that I use as often as I can. And like I said, it's 100%, not 100%, it's largely informed my worldview um, and philosophy, like personal philosophy, about like ethics and things like that and treatment. It's an incredible book and really, really poignant even till today. I mean, it's from the 70s, so it's not that old, but uh, it's probably... I consider it to be one of the most like influential 20th century American philosophy books and American philosophers. Um, and then a response to that was written by Robert Nozick, who wrote Anarchy, State, and Utopia, which was a libertarian response to John Rawls. So that book is read as like a debate, almost like a, a like an, an NC against that initial uh, book. Okay. So even though I'm not a libertarian and I don't think Robert Nozick is right about anything, Robert Nozick is the taxation is theft guy, kind of. like okay. He's like the godfather of... of mid mid 20th century american libertarianism um or i should say late 20th century um but still very brilliant uh really smart i just disagree with his value system to start with because uh but whatever we that's a whole other thing but those two books in, con- in conjunction serve as like a really interesting back and forth on like philosophy mm-hmm. and um and justice and, and especially and it makes you think like about modern, the ideas more deeply modern things uh, it makes you think about the ideas yeah, yeah, that, you like sure. that you like better, much better, in, in a deeper, more meaningful context. Exactly, exactly. And, and plus, they're a little more like, you know, yeah, you could say, oh, John Locke had like the biggest impact on American politics and blah, 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 blah. But that's like 400 years ago. It's not really as applicable. Yeah. This is 40, 50 years ago. It's, it's much more applicable, um, I think, and kind of more in tune to what is going on in our world right yeah. now. Yeah, Kyle and I have no problem thinking really old books are applicable you know we're both super into stoicism so yeah like yeah thing that 2000 year old roman society virtues are relevant for structuring your life today so i mean yeah i'm actually taking um i took a few philosophy courses we read uh like plato's republic we read uh, you know the nicomachean ethics and mm-hmm. aristotle's politics and you know that kind of stuff um yeah definitely not exactly my I mean, it's some of it's pretty good. Not exactly my cup of tea, uh, sure. the ancient Greek philosophy or the Roman philosophy, uh, but uh, definitely interesting. And I, I just love kind of oh, yeah. philosophy all around. Absolutely, mm-hmm. that's a common thing among speech and debate type people. But, yeah. Uh, but plus, I was an I was you... an elder. So. Yeah. So that makes sense. 
One thing I'm interested to know is is how did you manage all of these hobbies with like a full school load and you know just regular uh, life? How obligation? did you manage all these hobbies between all the hobbies? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so because it's like um, you graduated high school, you're in college. I'm presuming you're passing. Uh, yeah, you need to make money so, somehow. All these things. Yeah, so I have a I have a job, a few a few jobs. Um, I, I've actually had a job like a wage job at a restaurant since I was 16. Um, mostly part-time. And then I had like a bunch of side hobbies, like, you know, rock climbing lessons or, you know, whatever random stuff on the side here and there. Um, and I guess the short answer is I don't really balance it that well. I'll admit, like, I, I don't think I have a, a, the best balance. I don't think we're uh, saying like balance, just like manage to get to everything. Um, cause it kind of seems like you do the just yeah. go all in on something for a short amount of time handle it and then kind of throw it on maintenance mode and then tackle the next thing all in exactly that that, that is how, kind of that is how i i don't do two two things at once necessarily um i'll have a bunch of things at once on maintenance you know what i mean like if you mm-hmm. handed me lock picks i can still pick a lock but it's not it's not something i practice every day uh or i touch every day really or even like every week or every month um uh, but it's something i can still do and i'll practice it sometimes um but like I think this like the most recent two like I said disc golf and rock climbing are a really good example of this. Uh, got really into disc golf, went all in, was playing like two or three rounds of golf a week uh, after school, um, and for like maybe six months got really into it. And then at the same time I was picking up rock climbing a little bit, and then disc golf went on maintenance and rock climbing went on full blast. So now I'll play like one or two rounds of disc golf a month, but I'm rock climbing four day, three or four days a week. Uh, so I kind of, you're still 68%, you know, you're still 68% good at, um, at disc golf. It's like the, you, uh, you're still at that threshold for sure. For sure. For sure. And same thing with like DJing is something that I don't do as much anymore. Like I'm hired to do, well, (laughs) I was hired to do it Easter party next week, which is obviously not happening now, but, um, it's something that like I went I would practice like every, a lot all the time every week, especially in those early years. But now I kind of just do it on maintenance. I keep up with it, keep up my music collection, and then I can do these parties every so often when they happen. Um, and then I definitely too often I've let like school be the thing that gets kind of the short stick sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, especially in, especially in high school. Well, it doesn't sound like you've uh, let learning get the short stick though. Correct, exactly. That's yeah. I would like to make that distinction. Yeah, I took. Um, you don't sound like an. You don't sound uh, uneducated. By I don't think anyone's right. gonna ever accuse you of being that. Yeah, <laughs> and, and that's that's one thing. Like my teachers always would always say in high school is like you are scoring the best on tests. You're just not doing all the homework that you should be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're obviously learning, but you're just not doing all the work all the time or doing the work on time. So that was definitely an, an issue. Um, in high school, it was like debate kind of took, and I know mm-hmm. like Lewis, you're going to have the same, you, I'm sure you have a similar, like kind of debate was kind of a big part of your high school. Sure. Life. Uh, and well, I kind of did a similar thing actually, where I front loaded, I went to like the debate summer camps and kind of front loaded all the work cause I did policy. So same topic right. all season did six weeks of research over the summer, six weeks of prep, and then just kind of coasted on that during the school year and just kind of used camp files. I mean, I read camp, yeah. I read my camp app at national, like I read the same argument I constructed over the summer at the national tournament 11 months later. It's like, right. I didn't need to and stuff at all during which, the year. So I kind of did that same front loading. That, that tournament in which you placed uh, well deep into out rounds, right? Yeah. 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 That's crazy impressive. Uh, debate goals. I didn't have that luxury because I did LD, so we changed every other month. But also I did, Every event 
my goal was to break in every event except for interps mm -hmm. uh, throughout high school. So that's what I did. And um, at least once I tried mm -hmm. to. So I was kind of always bouncing around. Um, plus, I took 11 APs in high school. So that kind of took up a lot of my time as that's, well. Yeah, that's um, substantial. That's very substantial. Yeah. yeah. But that's school is definitely a thing that like got the short stick when I was focused on debate or focused on law. You got the short stick, but you still took 11 AP classes. So. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a very different measured short stick than. Well, but here's person. the thing. Here's the thing: is like you know my grades in those eight, eleven AP classes. It's like you're getting were, C's in the classes, but fives on the test, kind of thing. Or every test, yeah. 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 So that that's was nice. uh, that was. In fact, I had systems oh, not yeah. built for everybody for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was definitely weird. Is it my my my? I had teachers be like, "Why are you? You know, you should have an A in this class. You're going to get a five on the AP test. Like, I know it." Why don't you know what I mean? And it's kind of just this weird thing, but yeah, I had this like got a five on every AP test, but then didn't do best in every AP class, mm -hmm. um, which is like this weird thing, but definitely had its consequences, yeah. uh, which isn't great, but it is what it is, and I'm still doing okay now, and uh, had some interesting experiences, and yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, so that's a good, pretty solid summary of everything you've done up until this point, at least that we've covered. So what's some of the things, last question here, that you are trying to accomplish next, besides the specific at-lateral research goals. What are some of the next steps? You're going to graduate, presumably, I guess you're going on to graduate school because you hinted at that earlier. But what yeah. are some of the accomplishments, both in terms of professionally or learning? Yeah, so I... I say next five years as a time Next frame. five years, yeah. Um, five so years, Angela's going to get a lot of things done, so that's, that's a pretty broad scope, but... Yeah, the <laughs> last five years, I got a lot of things done. Uh, it's hard to think of how I want to you know, match that. Um, okay. So like, I guess I'll go like incrementally. So mm -hmm. in the next six months, I was hoping for this internship, uh, fellow research fellowship for archeology span that might not happen now because of COVID-19, but that has yet to been determined, which is kind of frustrating. Um, I interned in DC at the Senate two years ago and had like the greatest time ever. Um, and DC is my favorite city in the world. So my five-year goal is like make it to DC for another thing at some point, whether it's, Law school or grad school. That's pretty open-minded. That's good. Yeah. Whether it's yeah. Uh, whether it's uh, an internship in DC. So this internship would have been pretty. Exciting. It would have been ten weeks, uh, paid research fellowship, and the Library of Congress is my single favorite institution or building in the entire world. So it was like my dream to do this internship. It's an internship I like wanted to do since high school, um, and just had to wait for the right time to apply. And yeah, they were looking for somebody with experience with Mesoamerican Mayan archaeology, which well, that's is convenient. kind of yeah, perfect for me. And then this whole thing happened <laughs> with uh, COVID nineteen, so that might get might not happen. But I guess generally, yeah, that that goal is is DC in some capacity. And then I'm still deciding between law school or PhD in archaeology or both. Um, and I'm looking into like JD PhD programs, uh, things like that, and trying to figure that out. Take my LSAT and figure out that kind of stuff. So there's but, there's some there's some school ahead for sure. Oh, there's a lot of school ahead of me. A lot of school ahead of me. Yeah. I don't plan on being out of school. Like I, I definitely envision like ten years from now still being in school, and I think that's mm -hmm. because like so archaeology like PhD stuff. Well, archaeology PhD takes seven years minimum. Oh, okay, um, wow. Because if you're like a chemistry PhD, right? Or like, let's say you're, yeah, chemistry, you're running an experiment in a lab, you can run that experiment, you know, let's say you need 180 days of running the experiment to have enough data to publish, mm -hmm. you can run that 180 days in one year, and then spend the next two years publishing, and you get your PhD in four years. Um, in archaeology, your data collection is going to the field, but depending on the part of the world you're in, like in Belize, 
you can only dig like you can only excavate like 60 days out of the year because the rest of the year is raining like i, I mentioned it was raining three or four days a week the rest mm. of the year it rains every day all day so you cannot excavate so you were going at the best time of year and it was still raining four days a week and it was still 100 degrees most days 90 percent humidity um the rest of the year it's 110 115 degrees with 100 percent humidity and raining every single day so if you need that same 180 days of data collection and you can only do 30 to 60 days of data collection per year it takes three or four years to finish your data collection and then it takes another three years to do your you know your, your actual dissertation so archaeology is like really really long and arduous uh because of that um so that's why like if i ever if i even think about a gap year or law school or an, some sort of like internship in between um or job in between undergrad and grad school like it's gonna be 10 years you know what i mean mm-hmm. before i'm finishing my phd as of right now probably um unless i start with my phd like right away when i get out of undergrad which is ill-advised oh, oh. so <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of that oh, well, and then the other thing is like with the podcast i want to continue the podcast season two coming out in the next two or three weeks um I, like I said, I had that interview with that producer uh, this week, and then that'll get published hopefully maybe Wednesday. And then actual like scripted episodes coming back in two weeks or three weeks. Uh, I want to work with that company TrackLib more. I want to interview more musicians and producers. Uh, yeah, I mean, that would be like the goal is to be able to interview some of those people I mentioned. You know, mm-hmm. Brockhampton, like Romil Hemnani, the producer for Brockhampton. Uh, people who have used samples prominently throughout history i want to be able to interview those type of people and i hope that this partnership with TrackLib can kind of propel me in that direction uh definitely need to up the listenership that's another mm-hmm. goal is to just Us increase too. the listenership <laughs> and then monetize because uh it costs quite a bit to run the podcast because of all the rights for the music and that kind of stuff um because i try to do it above board mm-hmm. uh and plus i have a producer i should need to be start i should start paying as soon as i can um, cuz he's incredible and i don't even know why he's still doing this for free yeah i mean your episodes sound great yeah he's he's amazing he's like i he loves music and sampling and like music history as much as mm-hmm. i do which is why it works um, but i feel perpetually bad cuz of the amount of hours he puts on top of an equally busy college load he's uh, the radio announcer he's the sports caster for his school so he travels mm-hmm. for like every sports team and like does the broadcast uh and on top of all of and, and he's the the main news host for his school news radio and is this dad the guy from the news or is that just a last name coincidence yes it is actually oh, that's okay. the same guy okay. so yeah that's so, funny uh, okay. if you're a vegas local Tan- guy yeah. tannenbaum is my producer his dad is nathan tannenbaum, nathan tannenbaum who, is who does varsity the, quiz. varsity <laughs> quiz uh and Channeling, uh, he's a funny news. guy. I was, I, I was great guy. A question at the beginning, and you just gave too many details for me to not think there's a connection <laughs> right at the end. So I was like, Tannenbaum, that's the only Tannenbaum I know, it happens to also be in media production. So, yeah, so yeah, th- that's actually he's following his dad. He, uh, like interns at C- at a uh, channel eight with his dad over the summers and stuff like okay. that. Um, and he did the broadcast for our Clark High School. He's incredible, but he has this crazy busy schedule and he still finds the time to put in multiple hours a week producing this podcast for free um so i'm definitely goal is to figure out a way to compensate guy is uh in the in the short-term goals for sure awesome. uh and then at laddles we definitely need to increase at laddle education like i think it's a big i obviously am biased i think it's important but there's a greater conversation to be had about the way that we think about our ancestors and how smart they were mm-hmm. and at laddles are a key part of that for me because 
I will hand it to a person who thinks they know what they're doing and they aren't able to throw it um, because it's not, it's intuitive, but it still takes like some level of thought. And then I get the people to start thinking about how crazy it is that somebody came up with this weapon 45,000 years ago um, or 40,000 years ago. And I think it's a really good tool for uh, education and archaeology education. There's too many archaeologists who have never thrown in that ladle and don't really understand it as well as I think they should. Mm-hmm. So uh, now, even with your own field, that's a lot of uh, potential improvement, not just yeah. of, lay, of lay people, but of fellow archaeologists. For sure, researchers. for sure. In fact, I hosted an atlatl event for World Anthropology Day on campus a few weeks ago, and like a bunch of archaeology archaeology professors showed up who had never thrown in that ladle before. They had read about it in textbooks, but they didn't actually understand how it worked. Um, and there's actually been a problem in a lot of times in experimental archaeology, we will find out that previous theories about the way certain things worked end mm-hmm. up being false because the archaeologists who theorized about that never actually attempted to do it themselves. Okay. So for a lot of times, like, you know, people had a misunderstanding about how ladles worked until they actually tried to do it and then they realized how it worked. Sure. So... There's a lot of potential for that, uh, and I just think that it can be a really... It's such an important part of human history. Like I mentioned, it was used by almost every single culture on the planet. Like, mm-hmm. everybody, almost everybody can trace themselves back to somebody who used that ladle to provide for their tribe or their family, their village. And for the general population... It, remember, it's the first two-part weapon or tool system yeah. ever invented. It is, like, the foundation of human ingenuity and innovation, um, and nobody knows about it, or very few people know about mm-hmm. it. So... That's going to forever be a passion of mine to increase uh, education and about that. Um, public outreach, uh, science communication, SciComm, public archaeology, whatever you want to call it, is definitely like, I love teaching. I love explaining things. I want to be able to be in a position where I can teach students, teach the public, uh, whether that's working as a professor, which would mm-hmm. be cool because I could do research, or working like at a museum or doing some level of education outreach is my goal, long-term, long-term goal, because that's what I love doing. I love teaching. Um so yeah, those are kind of like my yeah. what, I'm, what I'm feeling for the next uh, five Couple to years. ten years. Yeah. yeah. So uh, thank you so much for the interview. Where can people find you online if they want to? Yeah. So you cast a wide net of things that might capture different people's interests. So where can people find you? Podcast, yeah. So Instagram. Uh, Instagram is definitely my like where I curate most of my hobbies. Uh, so that's at I dig it first. So that's I D I G I T one S. T. So like the numerical one and then ST. I dig it first. Uh, and that's that's Twitter as well. Uh, Twitter is definitely more political for me. Um, almost entirely political. And then uh, Instagram is everything. Archaeology, music, rock climbing, lock picking, etc., etc. Um, the podcast is called Sample Excavator. You can find that on Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, you can find that on the Google Play Store mm-hmm. or whatever that's, whatever that's called. Um, Apple Podcasts. Anywhere you can find podcasts. Uh, check that out and that's also at sample excavator on Twitter and Instagram as well and I think that's basically it uh, in terms of where to find me Um, I did want to plug some music though I know I know I mentioned that I mentioned that to you guys earlier um, and I know this is getting long I'll keep it quick yeah a couple quick plugs Kita Bordeaux she is a independent underground rapper originally out of uh, Austin, Texas, now in San Jose, California. When I say like underground independent, um, I was like her within her first hundred or first 75 like Instagram followers mm-hmm. uh, and within her first 50 Spotify plays. She's incredible. She released six projects in 14 months, which is just mind blowing if you think about it. Um, and by herself. 
She is an incredible rapper, singer, um, does a little production as well. Her song, Prelude to Betrayal, is my absolute favorite song by her. That's my num- It was my number one listened to song of 2019. I make every person I know listen to that song. I think it's really crazy. Um, then there's a genre of music I'm really into right now called City Pop. It is uh, really interesting. I could do a whole other hour about City Pop, but City Pop is Japanese funk synth fusion of the 1980s. So it's music from the 1980s. It's having a resurgence right now because there's an entire genre of music that's focused on just sampling 80s city pop. Um, so it's, that's kind of weird. But uh, city pop, there's a song called The Adventures of Tintin by Taeko Uniki. The slap bass in that song is out of this world. It is an incredible like funk synthy thing. It doesn't, it's hard to describe, but it's called The Adventures of Tintin. It's, you can't find it on um, iTunes, I don't think, but it's on YouTube by yeah Taeko Onuki. Uh, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, and then I'm a huge Tribe Called Quest and MF Doom fan, so if you don't know Tribe, if you don't know MF Doom, you need to check that out. And then my last plug is going to be... Uh, I have to think about this for a second. My last <laughs> plug is going to be Roxanne Chante, I think. Roxanne Chante is the first solo female rapper to release a, a record basically uh in 1986 she was 14 years old she freestyled a diss track against the utfo crew and there's a documentary made about it called roxanne roxanne on netflix it's incredible i would recommend watching it but uh she made the song called roxanne's revenge and it's just five minutes of amazing freestyle diss track and it's just like out of this world incredible uh definitely recommend that there's a I don't, you can find me on Instagram, or I'm not on Instagram, I already said that. Find me on, uh, what's it called, Apple Music. I have okay. my playlist there, and I publish a playlist for each of my podcast episodes there as well. Oh, I'm starting to get a Spotify. I don't want to pay for Spotify Premium because I already have Apple Music. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can the, create playlists pe- without being a premium guy. Yeah, no, I know, I know, but yeah, like, yeah. it's hard to like listen to things on without premium, so... I'm trying to, I don't listen to a lot of playlists on Spotify, but I'm trying to create playlists because I know people are sometimes interested in what I'm listening to because I have really, really wide music interests. I could see Funk, that. soul, jazz, uh, and then like, like I said, these weird Japanese deep cuts on like this micro genre of Japanese funk from the 1980s, uh, mostly a lot of like 80s, 90s hip hop, mm. soul, things like that. So uh, you can find me under my name, you know, Angelo Robledo on Apple Music and spotify as well i have like two or three playlists on spotify right now of just funk and disco stuff i'm listening to um but yeah that's kind of where you can find me and track my music track everything like that all right well perfect angelo thank you so much for joining us you have an incredible level of detail that's an understatement incredible level of detail uh to share <laughs> yeah, i'm on so sorry extremely... i pulled this out no, so long guys no don't, no, don't worry good. about it dude it's i mean amazing. we kept it going that's just a uh, unbelievable amount of detail on a very diverse range of topics of which Kyle and I have virtually zero to no expertise. So (laughs) you did a lot of educating of us and hopefully of our listeners. We love your positivity towards all these topics and your open-mindedness towards taking on new projects. Uh, The intensity and the thoroughness which you see these projects is inspiring and hopefully can help guide people on ways to structure their own learning efforts. And it was a great interview. So thank you so much for for joining us. Thank you guys. I've been you know, as I mentioned, I've listened to every episode of this podcast so far. You guys are great at asking good interviews, but you, or interview questions. But you also have really amazing uh, guests, so I'm honored to be able to be on your guys' podcast. I see it going really 
really far. I hope you guys, you know, I wish you guys the best of success because uh, it's been a great time, like listening along and getting to be on this podcast. So congratulations to you guys and the new podcast, and hopefully we can uh, work together more in the future. Absolutely, man. And we'll awesome. catch up sometime when uh, when it's safe to do so. Thanks yeah, so much, sure. man. Thank you so much for listening to our interview with Angelo Robleto. If you want to find more of his work, you can find him on Apple Podcasts with Sample Excavator or on Instagram or Twitter by searching Angelo Robleto. If you want to support our show, please do so by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts. That's the best way to make our show pop up in search and make us more popular. And if you have any comments or feedback, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for The Lewis and Kyle Show. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back in a couple of days with the next episode.